So hey, uh, if you have your Bible, you can keep it handy, but let me tell you the easiest way to follow along today, and I'm going to apologize up front, you're going to get a fire hose of the Bible, which is never a bad thing, okay? But uh, you, can, you can obviously try to follow along, but the easiest thing is if you, if you haven't downloaded, you have a smartphone, you should download the YouVersion app, and on the YouVersion app, every week under events is something that says Antioch Church. If you click it, it's like cheat a cheat sheet before the exam. It has all of the notes that I'm going to go through, including all of the scriptures, and that's the easiest way. And you can actually save that to your phone, and you can take your own notes in it as well. Either that, you're going to have to write really, really fast this morning, okay? So this morning, we're going to uh, take the next step in the Gospel Shapes series and talk about uh, how the Gospel shapes politics. So this is everybody's favorite topic. This is like, I'm just so looking forward to talking about politics, let me tell you. I'm not really going to talk about politics as we know it. But again, the context of this series is this reality, that, that we're convinced that the gospel is this simple truth. That throughout human history, God has been reconnecting humanity and creation, everything back to him through Jesus' death and resurrection. And when we reconnect because we've been disconnected, because we told God, We'll do it our own. We don't need your wisdom. We'll do it on our own. And this is what we've produced, the world we're in, that Jesus gives us the opportunity to reconnect back to God, the one who created us. And when we reconnect with him, we're reconciled back to him, it influences and touches every aspect of our lives, including very difficult topics for us to navigate, like what we'll talk about today, politics. And so we're going to talk about this this morning, and because I, I know one of the things that we'll talk about this morning that's a struggle is that, that what we have a tendency to do, because by kind of default, we struggle with making things and people into idols, which become substitutes for the ultimate God who is, who is Jesus. And sometimes politics can become that in our life. And so what happens is that we will have more passion, more energy, more opinion about political issues and candidates than we will about serving Jesus in our life. And it, we're in this season now, we're in this intense season of now, we're now, now it's really ramping up as we head towards a presidential election. So you think that the commercials and the debates and everything have been bad up to this point, just wait. And so it's just, we get in this frenzy in our country and we tend to miss the point of what God's trying to do because there is a kingdom that is not of this world, that is above this world, that is greater than any nation or any country, and it's the kingdom of God, and it's the one that you as a follower of Jesus serves above and beyond anything on this planet. And so we have to have our, our priorities kind of re restructured. But, but to understand what I'm going to talk about this morning, just to kind of give you a, a qualifier. So if you're here and you're on one of two sides and you're like, okay, Pastor John, tell me who I should vote for. Tell me how I should vote. Or maybe you're on another side, which is I'm going to see what Pastor John thinks about certain political candidates and I'm going to see if I agree with him or disagree if I'm going to stay around to this church or not. Well, you're going to be all sorely disappointed because we're not going to go there this morning, okay? Because there's something more important than a Christian's voter guide. It's actually the Bible, Okay, and that's where we go through the work of the Holy Spirit with an, a humble approach to what God is doing in our lives, which is far greater than any political system. But to start off, we have to ask the question, what is politics? How do we define that? So the simplest definition, this will be up on the screen, this is actually from the Oxford Dictionary. Here's the reality of what politics are. It says, the activities associated with the governance of a country or uh, other area, especially the debate or conflict amongst individuals or parties, having or hoping to achieve power. That's the bottom line. That is what, if, bottom line, politics is about one goal, achieving power. And therefore, everything is leveraged for one purpose, 
so that I can have power, and in having power, I can have influence over other people. That's what politics are about. And so when, when, when we start to engage and become very passionate about politics, what happens is, what politics does is it sets up the world in two categories, winners and losers. That's what politics always does. Those who have power and those who want power but don't have it. That's the two categories, winners or losers. And in the kingdom of God, there are no winners and losers. There are people who follow Jesus. There are people who experience the grace of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. But there isn't winners and losers. Even when you follow Jesus, you're like, I'm a winner and you're a loser because you don't know Jesus. Nope, not in the kingdom. There are no losers. And that's why it's important because we get into camps. We get into teams, the winning team and the losing team. And what happens is we lose sight of humanity because we always want to be on the winning team. Why? Because the winning team has power. So here, here's, an, here's a perfect example. A few years ago, I was at a playoff game. The Dodgers were playing the New York Mets, and Chase Utley was still playing for the Dodgers. And he was going into second base. I think he was either stealing or he had hit. Uh, he was trying to stretch a single into a double. And he went hard into second base, and he went hard enough, and he intentionally took out the second baseman for the New York Mets. He came in flying, actually, with spikes up, and he nailed him right in the shin, and he broke his leg. So the second baseman for the Mets is laid out on the infield, and I no joke, the first response of 56,000 Dodger fans was to cheer that the second baseman was injured. I was shocked. I was sitting there, I'm like, you, you're not, seriously. Don't you remember like Little League, you know, being a good sport, not cheering when someone's injured? They were cheering that he was laid out. And then finally, I think common sense after about a minute, like realized, oh, what, he's got a broken leg. Why would we instantly cheer when somebody is hurt on the other team. Why? Because in our mind, there's winners and there's losers. And for that one minute, 56,000 people lost sight of the fact that this is a human being laying on the field who broke his leg. He's not a New York Met. He's a human being who has a family and has a life outside of this thing called a game. And see, that's what happens when we get involved in politics, we lose sight of humanity. Because issues become issues and they lose the reality that every issue has a face, a human being behind it. And so that's what happens. And so when we lose sight of that and our focus is not the kingdom of God, but it's the kingdom of this world, then there's winners and losers. And God never set it up that way. Because if you want to have winners and losers, we're all losers except for the grace of God. And we have to remember that. And so I want you to, to keep this in mind. So again, so here's the, here's the thing that's very surprising. If politics is about achieving power, then here's the surprising reality. The Bible is full of politics. It is from the first to the last book of the Bible. It's filled with politics. Let me just, again, you're going to get a lot of scripture, but follow me with this. this is, here's the presence of politics. It's a quick kind of overview of the Bible. And this is why it's so important to understand, because at the core of every human being is a desire for power. And we have to be careful, because politics, we think, answers to that. And in reality, it leads us down a road that leaves us empty and wanting more. So the first thing is this. There's, there's politics at the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. So in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, this encounter that we might, you might be familiar with, that God says, listen, you can have anything except one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat from that, but you can eat from anything else. Here's your choice. And what do Adam and Eve do? It says this in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 3. But the serpent said to the, the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat it, of your, eyes, of your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the first temptation? It's political. You don't need God. You can have your own power. 
It's right there at the beginning. It's the same decision each one of us makes in our life. We are offered what? Control of our own lives, make our own decisions, have our own wisdom, or let God do it for us because he's the one that created us. What is that? That's a power play. That's control that we're going after. So you think, okay, well, that's just the beginning. Well, let's move on. If you get to God's people, God's chosen people, Israel, how did did they relate? So here's the way that God set it up originally. God told Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people. In other words, I will be your king, I will be your president, I will be the one that's in charge because you worship me and I have the answers for what you need. I supply your needs, I am the one that you'll look to. It's not because God's egotistical, it's because he's the best. But what do they do? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20 says this, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. What happened? They reject God again. They'd say, you know what? We'd rather have an earthly human king. We want a person that we can see. We want just like everybody else. We want somebody to judge and rule over us and lead us out into battle. God, we don't want you. We want to call the shots. So they reject God. Now, none of us have ever done that in our lives, have we? So then if you, if you get into the New Testament, it, you get past you know, God's people. And so the Jesus comes on the scene. And so you think, oh, it's going to get better. Well, what's the biggest challenge that Jesus faced? Who's the people that Jesus had to argue with and fight against the most? That's right, the religious establishment. Laced within religion is a vying for control. That's what it is. So listen to what it says in, in John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, Jesus had healed somebody on the Sabbath, did the wrong thing, obviously. But when he was, he, he was even calling himself God, his own father, making him equal with God. So Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, which is crazy. The, the religious leaders were so consumed with power that they couldn't even see that someone who was broken has been healed in front of them. They were just concerned with the day. Why? Because they were still trying to leverage power. Is it possible that you could miss out on the power of God because you're still trying to grab God's power away from him? The answer is yes. We do it all the time. So here Jesus is what? His biggest issue was this group of people that they, they, he wasn't there to take power away from them. They never had power in the first place, but they thought that he did. And that's why it's very important that we don't, we don't serve a religion. We serve a savior. We don't fight for Christianity. We serve Jesus. Because when we start forming and organizing things around belief systems, what happens is we start, what, vying for power. My religion is better than yours. It's, again, about power. It's about leveraging power. And then you think, well, it's got to get better. Well, then Jesus gets his disciples, and these are the ones that followed him for three years. They were day in, day out. They were with Jesus. They saw everything. They were eyewitnesses to his death and his resurrection. And listen to what they do in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he, was the one who is least among you all, is the one who is great. Wow, that's the opposite of politics, isn't it? 
The one who's least powerful, the one who's least, is what? Who's the one who is the greatest. So even his closest followers are trying to leverage their position with Jesus to see who's going to have the most power. So here's where Jesus flips everything on its head, and this is what's crazy. So you see throughout human history, everybody's vying for power. Even his closest followers are vying for power, vying for power. They want power. And so even after Jesus' death and resurrection, and just before he goes back to, sends back to the Father, his disciples are gathered again. And look at what they asked Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? There it is again. What are they saying? We want our earthly kingdom back. We want our power back. We want our position in the world back. Can you give that back to us? After they've seen everything. And what does Jesus say? This is what Jesus says. And I'll read it in a moment. He says, let me tell you about power. I'm going to give you power, but not power that you can leverage or power that you can control. I'm going to give you power for one reason. And here's what he says. Verse 7 says, he said to them, it is not, time, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. Here it is. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Why do human beings have power to be God's witnesses in the world? That's the only reason. It's not to rule, it's not to reign, it's not to leverage, it's not to control. But we have taken power, and what have we done? We've corrupted it. That's what politics do. They take this thing to leverage, to control other people. So if that's true, then you and I need to understand that at the core of who we are, this desire for power is ultimately the issue that all of us have to be. You don't have to be a politician to have an issue with politics. You're a human being, and all of us, want to, we have a tendency to want to be in control, to want to have power. So if politics are about achieving power, then Jesus and the gospel, surprisingly, are the exact opposite. And this is what's so difficult in our culture today is that as followers of Jesus, we fall in line with the rest of the culture in making politics our God when there is somebody who's greater than politics. His name is Jesus, and he is the exact opposite of everything politics tries to achieve. So let me just walk through some of the things of the priorities of Jesus. Just look at Jesus and how he, what he prioritized. The first thing is Jesus' posture looked like this. He didn't come to seek power for himself. He came to actually serve other people. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the exact opposite of what politics promotes, right? Someone who seeks after politics, ultimately what? You're climbing a ladder to get more influence and more power and leverage more things. Why? What did Jesus do? Jesus had all power. And what did he do? He became human to serve humans. That is the exact opposite. Now, this is extremely important because if you are a follower of Jesus, it's never about winning. It's always about serving. That's the posture we take. It's always about serving God's purpose, and that means serving other people. Not trying to use people what, to get what you want, but to serve people for God's purpose in their life. So Jesus did a number of things to, to make it really clear the way he wanted to kind of reset the understanding of how we, we looked at people. So one of the things that Jesus did, and it wasn't just to irritate or frustrate, but it was to make a point, but it did irritate and frustrate his people, the Jews, is that he made it a point to actually utilize and actually celebrate their enemies, the Samaritans. 
So their main rival and their main enemies was the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, according to the Jews. So they were unclean. They were religiously and politically the opposite of the Jews. They didn't want anything to do with them. So what did Jesus do? He went and talked to Samaritans, and he healed Samaritans. And then he tells a story that almost everybody in the world knows. It's the story of the good Samaritan, where he tells the story where actually it's the Jewish people in the story who miss it, and it's the Samaritan who gets it. Can you imagine how offensive that would be if somebody came in here and the people that you like like the least, someone tells a story about how we as Americans missed it, and those people we like the least get it. Would that be slightly offensive? For many of us, it would be. But he was making a point. There's not winners and losers here. Jesus is saying it's about people. And so what Jesus is demonstrating to the Jews is that you are not to hate your enemies. You're actually supposed to love your enemies, serve your enemies. Now, I know this is like an outlandish idea, but what if you run into somebody who's the actually politically polar opposite of you? They stand for everything that you're against. Could you possibly, maybe, think about loving and serving them? Oh, don't talk about that, Pastor John. I could never do that. It's exactly what Jesus did for humanity. It's exactly what we're supposed to do. Can you imagine what the political climate would look like if Republicans and Democrats served each other, if conservative and liberal actually served each other? We wouldn't have the tension and the division and the angst and the hate that we have in our country right now. But we're too bad about what? Winners and losers. And we miss the point completely. Second thing about Jesus and his priorities is what does Jesus' process look like? How did Jesus go about addressing issues that came up? He used the scriptures. He always used the scriptures. So Matthew chapter 5 or chapter 4, there's an amazing story about Jesus encountering the devil and this point of temptation. And this is a perfect example of how Jesus used the scriptures to clarify and challenge the enemy. And the way he did it is really important because it says something to you and I about the way we approach the Bible and how we're supposed to use the Bible. So in this particular temptation, it says this in verse 5 of Matthew 4. It says, Then the devil took him, talking about Jesus, to the holy city, and he set him up on a pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on the, uh, on the other hand, they will, bear, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then verse 7, what does Jesus do? Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's going on here? This is pretty impressive. Did you know that the enemy knows the Bible? Satan can quote scripture, and this is what he does. He actually takes Psalm 91, and he throws it in Jesus' face. He said, come on, Jump. Because if you jump, angels are going to swoop in and save you. Just prove that you're the son of God. Because nothing bad can happen to you, right? So he's throwing it. And Jesus comes back with Deuteronomy 6 and says, Oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm not supposed to test God. Why? You don't need to test God because God has proven himself to be who he is. So what's happening is Jesus is addressing what the enemy does. What does the enemy do? He takes scripture, he removes it from its context, and he uses it for his own purpose. But Jesus comes back and says, oh, no, no, you don't get to use the Bible that way. Why is that important? Now, I know none of us have ever done this. We've never taken the Bible with an agenda and opened the pages and tried to find how it can justify our agenda. No one's ever done that, right? We do it all the time. We do it even with politics. We will go chapter and verse 
And we'll say, this is why this is the right way to vote, or this is the right candidate. Why? Because we came to the scriptures with that in mind already, looking to find justification. If you're doing that, you're doing exactly what the enemy wants you to do. You're playing into his hands. Jesus never did that. Why? Because here's the difference. You and I are not supposed to be people who read the Bible. You and I are supposed to be people who let the Bible read us. There's a difference. When you go to the Bible looking to justify your belief, you will always find it. But if you're looking, you go to the Bible looking for God to show you through humility what he wants you to know, then you may actually find something different than what you've realized. That's why this is what it says in Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 11. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does that mean? When we let the Bible read us, it just cuts us wide open in a good way. It exposes the motivation inside of here, and then it actually starts to deal with the core issue inside of us, which is, for many of us, what is vying for power and control. And that's why it's so important that we don't say, okay, well, I, this candidate or this proposition, why this is, this is what God would want. Be careful. <laughs> is it what you wanted in the first place, and then you found some chapter and verse to justify it, or did you go to the scriptures humbly and say, Lord, what do you want me to know about myself? What do you want me to know about the world? And then let the Holy Spirit through the scriptures reveal to you the truth of God. See, there's a difference. That's how Jesus approached the scriptures. That's his process. Then the third thing is this. The priorities of Jesus also are seen in his plan. Jesus' plan. And his plan is this. It's what we told you, what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus is the, the means that God uses to reconnect all of us back to him. So we're reconciled because we're separated because we rejected him in our lives to do it our own way. But Jesus makes a way for us by paying for our sin to reconnect us with God. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. It says, for in him, talking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus makes peace between us and God, reconnects us back to the one who has all power and has all authority and as human beings, we can all take a deep breath. Why? Because God is on the throne, and we don't have to be. That's what he is in the process of doing. That's why Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus instructs us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is he saying? Make followers that are reconnected back to me. If you do that, you won't have to worry about control and power. Why? Because you allow Jesus to have that. Here's, the, here's, the, here's what, what we as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what your life should look like. It really doesn't matter who's in the White House. I know some are like, oh, Pastor John, you can't say that. No, 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 no. I can say that because it only matters who's on the throne. We have had liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, progressive, non-progressive people in our White House, and yet, you know what? The most important thing is the gospel still gets preached the kingdom still gets advanced and people get saved, regardless of who's in the White House. Because we don't live and die by who's in the White House. We live according to the one who what? Who gave everything for us, who died on the cross, who is what? At some day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, not to the President of the United States. What? To Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the Lord over all. And if that's true, then you and I don't need to panic if the candidate we vote for doesn't win or the proposition we want in doesn't win. Why? Because it doesn't necessarily, in big scope of things, doesn't matter because God's still going to accomplish his purpose. 
So as a pastor, I get inundated by all kinds of stuff about people's persuasions and what they think I should think or what the church should think. And that's why if you come to Antioch, you will never get a voter guide. I will never allow our church to hand out voter guides. Because I'm convinced that if you are serious about voting, which you should take seriously because it's a privilege and an honor, it should be done with humility and prayer. That you may ask advice of other people, but don't just go to a website or get some voter guide and say, well, if so-and-so said I should vote this way, because you don't know if they've done what you should do. You don't know if they're honored the fact that God is on the throne and that's all that matters. And because of this, I've watched in our elections, depending on what you're, which, which way you lean in politics and who's in the White House, when one side wins, the other, the other side goes, oh no, that's the end of the world. And I saw this happen a number of years ago in one of our elections. So let me just read to you what I wrote in response to what I had seen when I woke up one day after one of our presidential elections. It says, as I read through the chatter on Facebook and other media outlets this morning in response to the presidential election results, I was surprised and somewhat disappointed by the reactions of many followers of Jesus who now fear the end has come. Because a person with a different ideology and morality sits in the White House, God, his work in us, and his mission in the world is somehow threatened. Really? Have we lost sight of the power, authority, and glory of Jesus and his death and resurrection? Has there ever been a government, liberal or conservative, that has thwarted the move of the Holy Spirit in advance of the kingdom of God in the world? In my limited knowledge of history, I can't seem to find one. What I have seen in history and the world is that God's purpose advances regardless who is in power. First century Christianity exploded under the oppressive rule of the Romans. The church in China has grown by millions despite a government who has worked hard to stop it. Even now we hear reports that the underground church in Iran is rapidly expanding even though it is illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity. It seems that the more hostile the environment that Christianity finds itself in, the more it flourishes. If we exchanged our zeal and passion for politics with a compassionate commitment to demonstrate God's love through our, our lives as we follow Jesus, it really wouldn't matter who, much who was in the White House. That's the beauty of the gospel through the body of Christ. It's not limited or contained by leaders, nations, geography, politics, or persecution. It's driven by God's heart to reconcile the world back to himself through Jesus. You can't stop that. You can't. And, you know, we have, a, we have a, a skewed perception in our country. If you were to travel to other nations that have had outwardly corrupt governments for centuries, you would find a group of Christians who don't lose their faith when they don't win an election because God's purpose still advances. And if our perspective is that way, we will vote and we will pray and we will pray, we will vote for certain candidates. But if that candidate doesn't end up, which by the way, the worst, sometimes the worst thing you can get is the one you voted for. I'm not saying that about anybody right now, okay? I'm just saying. It's true because I know people in every presidential election who said, yeah, I voted for that person with regret. Why? Because they didn't turn out to be the person or the savior that they thought they were going to be. But what if Jesus is the savior? And I don't put the pressure on the person in the White House to save my soul because they can't. Only Jesus can do that. Then the fourth thing, Jesus' purpose. The ultimate goal and purpose that Jesus is going to fulfill is he's going to reconnect humanity back to God, which means that the God of the universe once again will lead his people. That's what's going to happen. That's what God's desire is. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, this is what Jesus did when he was walking the planet. It says, when he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What was Jesus doing? He wasn't saying, 
He wasn't talking about the Roman government. He wasn't talking about the Jewish establishment. He was declaring what? The kingdom of God, which was far greater. What is the kingdom of God ultimately going to look like? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Someday when we are all gathered in the throne room, this is what it's going to look like. It says this. I looked and I behold a great multitude that no one could count or number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Did anybody get excited about that? Here's the scary thing. Did you know that there's going to be liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, progressive, non-progressive, in the throne room of heaven? Can you handle that? Some of us are like, I got no problem with skin color, languages, people groups, tongues, but I can't stand the other party. There better not be any Democrats up there. Or there better not be any Republicans up there. There will be, I guarantee it. And if we can't get along here, and we're the church, how are we going to somehow stand before God and like, oh, everything's fine now? No, because we're supposed to be different than the culture we live in. People should look to the church and say, man, I, 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 they're already trying to figure out what, how, the, how do different languages and different nationalities and different skin colors get along. That's great. What if Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals could actually be together and love each other? That would be a miracle in our country. Why? Because they all come under not... <laughs> 1600 Pennsylvania Andrew, they come under the throne of God. Why? Because what is God wanting to do? His ultimate goal is revealed to us in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. John gets this vision and he writes this Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. No winners, losers. No, just people who are now what? Once again, we are what God created us to be. We are the people of God. He is our God. He is the authority. We don't need a king or a president or an emperor or any ruler over us. Why? Because we have God. That's what God is going to reestablish. So that's why we have to look at this differently. And here's one of the dangers that we have to be very careful of, is that we have a tendency, much like Israel did years ago, is that we want a human ruler. Somehow we feel safe with, safer with a human being than the God of the universe. And what happens is that we start to look at certain candidates or people who we put in office as idols. They become a substitute to the real thing. And so it's amazing how Christians in our culture can have more passion about a candidate and be more angry at other people about a candidate than they have ever shown about who Jesus is in their life. This, that's one of the things, side note, that's why I stay off of Facebook. I do. Because the stuff that gets spewed out there in the name of Jesus over politics, I'm sorry, it has to disappoint God because it's so far short of who he is. And I think we have to realize that we sometimes are guilty of idolatry when it comes to politics. We have made a human being a God, and they were never meant to be because there is only one God, and he's revealed to us in Jesus. So you might be saying, here's the, here's the, the frustration. Well, that's great. What are we supposed to do now? <laughs> that's helpful. We're just not supposed to vote at all. We're, not, we're just not supposed to engage in the political process. No, we are, but there's a posture. See, the, the, the model for us is Jesus. The model is not a political candidate. 
So please, with any candidate, whether it be Republican or Democrat, have your eyes wide open that that person is a human being. So whether you are ultra-liberal and you like a certain candidate, realize that person's a human being. That means even though you agree with their policies, they're not perfect. And we have to be careful as Christians that we think because that person is our political persuasion, everything they do is righteous. No way! There is no unrighteous. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3. So be realistic. But here's how we engage the process. Four things. First is this, honor authority. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Whether you disagree or agree with someone who's in authority, you still honor their position. Listen to what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He says, Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brethren, fear God, honor the emperor. What is Peter saying? If someone is in a position of authority, God has placed them there, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. So therefore, by their position, they deserve honor. And that's even for the, the candidates you disagree with. You still show them honor. Why? Because what does God say? You'll be doing good. You'll be demonstrating that. Second thing is to pray consistently. Pray consistently. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When was the last time you prayed for the candidate that you don't want to vote for? Or the leader who's in office that you don't like? Instead of complaining about what they're not doing, when was the last time you got on your knees and cried out to God on their behalf? Because if you, if you realistically, look at, realistically look at people in politics in our country today, their job is absolutely impossible because we have placed an impossible expectation on them that only can be placed on God himself. So we need to pray for those who are in, in leadership. And then the third thing, Embrace humility. Paul writes this also, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Man, what if we just humbly approach the political process? Not saying I have all the answers or my side has all the answers and you're wrong, but what if we humbly approached and actually learned from people that maybe there's something that we can learn from somebody on the other side of the aisle, somebody who we disagree with, somebody that we don't understand. I think it's actually possible. And then the final thing is this, maintain priorities. Jesus said these words, Matthew 6, but first, or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are we supposed to do? Seek God first, his agenda, his power, his kingdom first. That's it. That's if we start there, then, then when we engage the political process, we're engaging the political process as kingdom people, not political pundits or people vying for power. We're representing Jesus in the process. So we're humble and we serve and we love our enemies and we try to figure out a way to, what, to come together and not to separate. We don't look at people as losers. 
It's a difference than the way that we live our lives today. And this is what I want to close with because this is true for not just politics, but it's true for everything. And this is where we always go. This is where we always kind of go off the rails in our lives. So a couple weeks ago, two Saturdays ago, we had our, our True Identity event, which so many people got to be a part of. And what Jamie talked about is something that's so fundamental to following Jesus that sometimes we skip over it. And that is really knowing who you are in Jesus. When we don't get that one right, then almost all the decisions we make based on a different or false identity gets us into all kinds of trouble. And that's even when we start to put ourselves, we put labels on ourselves in the context of politics. Because what's interesting is, you know, people will talk to me and, and they'll try to put some feelers out to see what, if I'll bite on what my politics are. Because they want to know if I'm on their team or if I'm the, on the other team, which misses the whole point. Because my primary identity is not liberal or conservative or progressive or Democrat or Republican. Those are not even my identities at all. My primary identity is that I'm a child of God. And if I start with that, that will shape the way I vote. That will shape the way I engage politics. Why? Because I'm a child of God, which means I'm a child of grace, that the only reason I'm a part of God's family is because Jesus died for me. Even though I didn't deserve it, I live in his grace. And if that's how I come to faith and that's how I come into God's family, then how do I treat other people who haven't gotten there yet? with the same grace that I received. And if we could just clear the deck and say, can we stop jumping into parties? And the moment we hear somebody is a Democrat, because I know we're in the shadow of the Reagan library, I know we live in a conservative context in Simi Valley, and I know it always goes red in political elections. I get that. But can we just get off of the fact that we have to be a Republican to be a Christian? Because by the way, I have tons of friends who are Democrats and they call themselves Christians too. They, they seek the scriptures, they submit to the Holy Spirit as much as I do. Yet I still love them even though we are, and I, I've sat with friends and I listen and say, we will never agree on this issue. But you know what? I love you. And they'll say, I love you too. And we're friends and good friends even though we may disagree because we come from points of conviction. If we just remove the labels and said, you know what, not Democrat, not Republican, are you a child of God? Because that's the only identity that goes on forever. Because when you die, sorry, your political party will not follow you into the kingdom of God. It just, it'll stay here with everything else. But if we were to live out that reality, I'm a child of God first, then maybe we might actually see a difference in our political system. Let's close our eyes and let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love humanity so much that you gave your life for everyone. In fact, you demonstrated to us what our posture is supposed to be, and that is you gave yourself to serve people. You didn't leverage your position as God for your own benefit. You actually stepped into human form to allow yourself to be, to serve a, a purpose that was for us. And so, Lord, we as the model for us, would you give us the strength and the courage and the humility to do the same? That, Lord, we would not see winners and losers. We would not see parties or teams. But, Lord, we would just see human beings like you do. Human beings that you gave your life for, that you love. That ultimately, they don't, it's not that they need to part, be a part of a political can, uh, party. They need to be a part of your kingdom. And Lord, that's the invitation we want to give. That's the way we want to live. So Lord, would you remind us, especially as we go into this next season of time 
where politics gets ramped up, would you keep us grounded in the fact that we are your children? We belong to you, Jesus, through your death and your resurrection. And by the grace of God, we get to be a part of the kingdom. We get to be adopted into the family of God. And as we walk that out, Lord, we actually might be able to see a change in the discourse and the separation and division in our country. That, Lord, we unite under you, your authority, your power in our life, in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.